Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. First off, in our highlights of the Emergency Medicine Update Conference 2014, we have with us Dr. Stuart Swadron. Dr. Swadron is the Vice Chair for Education and the Residency Program Director in the Department of Emergency Medicine at LA County USC Medical Center. He's an Associate Professor of Clinical Emergency Medicine at USC's Keck School of Medicine of the University. All right, so we're going to talk about something scary, right? Vertigo. Now, the whole thing about vertigo is we're well, concerned about missing a stroke, and those strokes obviously are in the brainstem, okay? Probably about less than 25% of the brain is the area where all the important stuff is in terms of the cranial nerves that we're talking about. And so that works to our advantage, of course, because it's very hard to get a central eight nerve without getting other things in the neighborhood. It's very hard to get an eight without getting something around it. Okay? Now, is it isolated is the question here. If it's isolated vertigo, it's much less likely to be something serious. Okay? So everyone, everyone knows that. Now, if you have more than one thing on the central side, you're automatically talking about central vertigo, MRI, admit, that type of stuff. The other side, the peripheral vertigo, the only time when you actually can make a diagnosis of peripheral vertigo when you have more than one feature okay, is... This, when you have vertigo, tinnitus, and hearing loss. What's that? That's Meniere's disease, right? So outside of that, if vertigo is not isolated, okay, then forget it, right? It's, it's beyond us. It's going to be something we're going to have to consult for. We're going to get an MRI, that type of thing, okay? And there's something interesting that's happened in the past couple of years, actually, is we used to say if they've got the vertigo and the hearing loss together, that's peripheral. Unbelievably, in the past three years, several articles have come out that have actually debunked that. So outside of the actual Meniere's triad of tinnitus and vertigo and hearing loss, if it's not isolated, it's central until proven otherwise. A lot of people miss strokes. It's very hard to practice with never missing a posterior fossa stroke in your whole career. Okay? But if you look back at the charts, you see the same old crap every time. Cranial nerves, 2 through 12, normal. Okay, you can't write stuff like that because... People say, well, did you test cranial nerve number seven? How did you do it? Did you look at the anterior two-thirds of the tongue taste and all that kind of stuff? I just actually tell my residents to write down no Ds. Okay, and those basically, the diplopia, the dysarthria, those are basically the other neighborhood signs. Those are the other cranial nerves. So at a minimum, you want to make sure that you document if that was what you were worried about. If someone comes in with that vertigo and you're worried about making sure it's not a stroke, you've got to at least document that they don't have any other Ds other than the dizziness, the vertigo. Just to remind our listeners, the five Ds of a posterior circulation stroke are dizziness, diplopia, dysarthria, dysphagia, and dysmetria, or cerebellar ataxia. And it's also important to check the long tracks because they all go through that neighborhood too. And the most important thing to check that can give you a heads up is just a plantar response, and no one ever does it. And don't do it in the States anymore. No one does that kind of stuff. They test motor strength, and that's it. But if you get an upgoing plantar, you're done. It's central, right? And so that's an important thing to add on to your routine. So the clincher when it comes to vertigo is first to figure out if the vertigo is isolated or not, because that'll help lead you towards a central versus a peripheral cause. 
If the vertigo is truly isolated, we don't worry so much about the nasty possibility of a posterior circulation stroke. Remember that the cerebellum and brainstem are both supplied by the basilar artery and are much smaller than the cerebral hemispheres, and so it's hard for a stroke to pick off the vestibulo-ocular nerve, that's cranial nerve number 8, without picking off other cranial nerves. To help you remember which signs to look out for with these other cranial nerves, think of the five Ds. Again, dizziness, diplopia, dysarthria, dysphagia, and dysmetria. And don't forget to check the long tracks as well in the extremities. Next, Dr. Swadron is going to talk about the importance of getting that vertiginous patient up off the bed and doing a walk test to help give you more data to work with in deciding whether the patient has a central or peripheral cause of their vertigo. So it's very important to walk your patients, right? And everyone's heard that a million times. And it's very true that all this, this diadoco stuff and this pointing stuff is not that helpful, and I'm sure that you know that. But when you get them up to walk, you'll see that there's a problem often if they've got a cerebellar involvement, okay? Now, I know what a lot of you are probably thinking when I get my patients up with BPPV, with benign positional paroxysmal vertigo, to walk, they don't walk so hot. And I don't know what the hell these guys are talking about all the time when they say walk the patient. And I want to make sure that, that you understand the contrast between how people walk when they've got BPPV, which is the commonest cause of benign vertigo, and when they've actually had a cerebellar stroke. So what do you walk like when you have BPPV, right? Someone says, get up and walk. What do you think they look like? You know, I mean, they're really sick and they're miserable and they're vomiting and you guys know, right? And they're kind of holding on to something and they walk a little bit and they go, and then they walk a little bit more and they go, you know, it's a very miserable thing, right? So residents, when they're beginning, always say, well, this guy has a problem walking. He doesn't look like he's that steady. And you know that's the case, right? But the difference is, is that when people have a cerebellar lesion, okay, and the cerebellum is a big place, it's a bonus. If you, if you see that there's a cerebellar sign, you know you're done. You know that there's a central infarct. And so the thing about cerebellar strokes, and we've had the privilege to have a few emergency doctors that were unfortunate enough to have suffered cerebellar strokes, and they tell you what the difference is. When they tell them to walk, they said, geez, you know, and I have a friend that was one of these people. He's 50 years old. He had a posterior cerebellar stroke. And he said, you know, they told me to walk. I didn't know the difference between the floor and the ceiling. I, I, it wasn't even an issue of walking. I mean, it was just forget about it, okay? And that's the kind of thing that you might, you might hear. And the reason for that is that, just to do a schematic, remember that the cerebellum is the master mover. No movement happens without going through the cerebellum. It's got its inputs from the eyes and from the vestibular glands and from the spinal cord, Right? And so those are the three inputs, and the cerebellum is the master mover that coordinates them all. So if you have a problem with your vestibular gland, you've got a virus that's causing an acute vestibular syndrome, the brain is smart enough to shut that off. The cerebellum will forget about that input, and it will just use the other inputs. That's the important difference between a cerebellar central lesion and these peripheral lesions, okay? When you have a problem with the cerebellum itself, it doesn't matter what the eyes see, it doesn't matter what the vestibular glands say, it doesn't matter what the spinal cord says, you just cannot coordinate your movement. And so there's a fundamental difference. And the very, very important thing to grasp is that missed stroke, when you look through the bad cases and the, and the uh, closed claims, you see the same thing. You see young women that came in, their exam showed that they had non-isolated vertigo, i.e. they had more than one D, but the doc, because they just, you know, they were young and they didn't ha have, in their opinion, a lot of risk factors, they just dismissed it. And so it's critical, critical, critical to go with that 
exam that we just talked about, your exam with the D's and the long tracks, and go with it. And that's exactly the kind of patients that we see in the literature we're missing these strokes on. In fact, there was just a big New York Times article about it. So for young patients who present with vertigo, look for the D's, look for the long tracks, ask about risk factors. For example, if they smoke or if they're on the birth control pill or they use cocaine or they have autoimmune disease, they're at higher risk for stroke than the general population. Because the patients that we miss stroke on most often are young patients. Next, Dr. Swadron is going to talk about the use of CT in patients who present with vertigo. So we had a little discussion, Mike and I, about CT and whether I do CT. And I absolutely do CT on patients that are older with lots of risk factors because you often will see evidence of vascular disease there. The other issue, of course, is that you'll see bleeds. And, you know, we were talking about if I'm really confident it's BPPV, then I won't do it. Well, you know what? No one can be that confident of anything. Studies of neurologists over the past 10 years have found that even they will get it wrong in terms of distinguishing central and peripheral vertigo. So if patients are older, I tend to do a CT to check for bleeding. Now, I'm not doing a CT to look for a brainstem infarct. I'm doing a CT to look for the mass effect of a cerebellar infarct. Yes, it's true you might not see an infarct in the posterior fossa on CT technology. It's possible. The thing is, is that when the serious part about that is that it swells and you herniate, you get tonsillar herniation. And so you might not be able to detect that there's hypodensity, but look at the fourth ventricle. It's been squeezed and deformed. And so one thing I think ER doctors should be pretty consistently looking for on the CTs is to see whether or not there's any deformity of the fourth ventricle. So you see that, and what do you do? You call a neurosurgeon, right? Because that patient's going to herniate. They spend so much time in medical school telling us to worry about cerebellar bleeds. But the fact of the matter is, is that more common and more life-threatening is an infarct because it's going to cause swelling and it's going to kill them. And people don't recognize it on the CT. They don't look for it. So that's important. In the blog post and written summary, we'll have an image of a CT head showing a cerebellar stroke with a squashed fourth ventricle. Okay, so what we've covered so far is making sure that it's isolated. And that's the most important thing. And if you just do that, and you just stick to your guns and make sure that the vertigo is isolated and there's no other Ds, you're doing a pretty good job. And just to see how good a job we're doing, there was an article that came out. It's not that important about the methodology, but this is all the California hospitals and everyone discharged for vertigo or for dizziness, okay? And of those patients, only one in 500 did they find that there was a stroke in the first month after discharge. That's the first thing I need to do is to reassure you because people are so paranoid about missing posterior strokes and uh, it's a really big issue now. But if you compare it to the number of missed MIs or acute coronary syndromes, what's the miss rate for an acute coronary syndrome? 2%, 3%, 4%, right? So the miss rate for this is a lot lower. And so that should provide some relief. Now, if you want to be even better than that, though, there's still room for improvement. Even in this study, they were able to show that in that first month there, you see that big hump? There was an excess of cerebrovascular death. So they were, we were losing patients from strokes in that first month after they were discharged. So there still is an opportunity to do better. And so the last thing I'm going to discuss with you is how to be so good that when someone comes in with isolated vertigo, that you'll still be able to pick the few strokes out of that. The first thing and the most common thing, maybe 90% of these cases are BPPV, okay? And the key to making the diagnosis of BPPV is the time course. 
okay? They have episodes of vertigo that are limited to less than one minute. And you're probably thinking, that's BS, because these people are dizzy and miserable all the time. They get up to walk, they're not steady, right? You're thinking that. But if you actually talk to the patients when you're moving them, they'll tell you that they have vertigo. Forget about the Dix Hall Pike for a second. And that sensation of movement will only last for a few seconds. They're gonna feel like crap forever. They're gonna feel like crap after that, they might vomit after that, but the actual sensation of spinning is only limited to several seconds, okay, less than a minute. And that's the key to making this diagnosis. And then you know the treatment is the Epley maneuver, and I didn't believe in that either when it came out, but if you have the patients repeat it over and over at home, it actually works, it's near 100%. Now, yesterday I was talking about the path to hell being paved with D-dimers and uh, BNP. Actually, I have a, a new version of that. The path to hell is actually, when you go through the they're not pearly gates. What are they? They're red gates. When you go through, you basically see people performing this maneuver on either side of you, the Dix Hall Pike maneuver. And the reason I say that is every lawsuit that I've been referred of a missed posterior fossa stroke, they've all shared one thing in common. They all have a designation positive Dix Hall Pike. So my recommendation is to stop doing this test, okay? Because it's basically not understood well, and it's basically leading people down the path to misdiagnosing posterior fossa strokes. Whoa there, Dr. Swadron. I have to stop him here because I believe that the Dix Hall Pike, if understood and performed properly and interpreted properly, is a valuable test. And the key is if understood and performed properly. Just like any test in medicine, if it's not understood and used properly, it can lead you down the wrong path. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Dr. Swadron goes on to tell you how to understand, perform, and interpret the Dix Hall Pike properly in a minute. But first, I'd like to tell you about some of the available literature on the accuracy of the Dix Hall Pike maneuver for the diagnosis of benign positional vertigo. According to the Clinical Practice Guideline on BPPV, put out by the Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery Journal in 2008, and by the American Academy of Neurology in the same year, the Dix-Hallpike maneuver is considered the gold standard test for the diagnosis of BPPV. They note that the accuracy of the Dix-Hallpike maneuver for BPPV may differ between specialty and non-specialty clinicians, but that a sensitivity of 82% and a specificity of 71% for the Dix-Hallpike maneuver in BPPV has been reported for specialty clinicians, and in the primary care setting, a positive predictive value for a positive Dix-Hall-Pike test of 83% and a negative predictive value of 52% has been reported. So, a Dix-Hall-Pike maneuver doesn't necessarily rule in or rule out a diagnosis of BPV, but it can be helpful as one important data point in deciding whether or not a patient has BPPV or a posterior circulation stroke causing their vertigo. The problem with the Dix-Hall-Pike maneuver is that if you take a patient with a stroke and do the maneuver on them, they will have non-specific worsening of their symptoms. And if you misinterpret that as a positive Dix-Hall-Pike, that's when you run into trouble. It's all about interpreting the test carefully. It should only be considered positive when a patient without vertigo at rest has vertigo and torsional nystagmus beginning briefly after the sudden change in position and then resolves in under a minute. 
the nystagmus produced by the Dix-Hallpike maneuver in BPPV typically shows two important diagnostic characteristics. First, there's a latency period between the time that you put the patient's head down and the onset of subjective rotational vertigo and the objective nystagmus. A typical latency period would range from 5 to 20 seconds, although it may be as long as a minute in rare cases. Secondly, the nystagmus has a crescendo-decrescendo pattern. That is, the rate of nystagmus typically begins gently, increases in intensity, and then declines in intensity as it resolves over about one minute. Another classical feature of the nystagmus associated with BPPV is that the nystagmus typically fatigues, That is, there's a reduction in the severity of the nystagmus when the maneuver is repeated. But most experts don't recommend repeating the Dix-Hallpike because it's cruel punishment to the patient. Now Dr. Swadron will give you some tips on how to perform the Dix-Hallpike properly. And if you're going to do this test, there's a certain thing you have to do. First of all, you don't do it on anyone who's vomiting or sick or looks like they're incapacitated. I mean, you do it on people who look okay, who have no nystagmus at rest. Okay? If you want to do it, that's how you do it. And you've got to be looking at them the whole time you take them over. You have to be making eye contact. That alone is enough to invalidate the test if you don't do that properly. You take them over and you look at them. And what do you expect to see when you look at that person after you've bent them over the table? So what you expect to see, remember this, is nothing. You should see nothing. Nothing should happen. And several seconds should pass before you actually see the nystagmus. So the delayed onset has got to be there. And the other things about the Dix-Hallpike is that it's fatigable because the brain is smart enough to say, hey, I'm getting garbage messages from the vestibular glands. Shut them off. And if you ask the patient to fixate, it will immediately, you'll see within seconds that it will stop. Okay? It decreases with fixation, again, because of the cerebral control. So if you are going to do a Dix-Hallpike, do it properly, and maybe you won't be in trouble. Now, BPPV is definitely the biggest thing, and it's the easiest thing to knock off this list. The real difficulty, the real stress, comes from distinguishing acute vestibular syndromes and cerebellar strokes. And again, it's the onset that is key. Cerebellar strokes tend to have a more sudden onset, but you can still be fooled. Now, this upcoming part is where the money is. Dr. Swadron is going to talk about the head impulse test, which is the first part of your mnemonic HINTS, H-I-N-T-S, head impulse, central nystagmus, and test of skew. So this is the head impulse test. It's kind of like a doll's eyes. Very straightforward. When you move someone's head quickly to the side, you expect them to follow you, okay? And there should be a seamless movement of the eyes. So even though we're going to both sides, okay, quickly, her eyes, there's no saccadic movement. Her eyes seamlessly track you, okay? Normal is bad. This is confusing, but normal is bad. So say this woman, okay, you went through, and she's, she's their young woman taking the birth control pill, and she smokes, and you're deciding whether she's got an acute vestibular syndrome or she's got a stroke, and you do that test and it comes out like that, what does it mean? It means she's got a stroke. Because if she has a vestibular syndrome, you're going to see a positive on one side with psychotic movement. So when you move this gentleman's head to the left, there's no problem. He seamlessly tracks you. When you move it to the right, you can see that he has to do a catch-up movement. No problem towards the left. When he goes to the right, that jumping is indicating that he has a vestibular gland problem on the right side. So this is a benign situation. So you expect to see a positive head impulse test in patients that have acute vestibular syndrome, a benign peripheral acute vestibular syndrome, which you treat with steroids. 
So let's go over this first part of the HINTS exam, the head impulse test. An abnormal result of a head impulse test usually indicates a peripheral vestibular lesion, whereas a normal response virtually confirms a stroke. This is how to perform the head impulse test. Ask the patient to stare directly at your nose, then quickly rotate the patient's head to one side and then the other. If you look at the patient's eyes carefully and see corrective saccades when turning to the given side, this is highly suggestive of a peripheral cause on that same side. A negative head impulse test, that is normal eye movement without the jumping corrective saccade, should raise your suspicion for a cerebellar stroke. Now rarely a patient with stroke will have an abnormal head impulse test, but this will also be accompanied by other focal neurologic findings, usually subtle oculomotor findings. So an abnormal head impulse test by itself does not completely rule out stroke. You need the rest of the HINTS exam and an otherwise perfectly normal neurologic exam to rule out stroke. So what makes up the rest of the HINTS exam? The N stands for central nystagmus and the T stands for test of skew. The presence of any one of these three dangerous signs has a sensitivity of 100% and a specificity of 96% for stroke. Now that you've got the idea about the head impulse test, Dr. Swadron's going to talk about the rest of the HINTS exam. That is, the N of central nystagmus and the T of test of skew. So anything that's vertical is central. And by that same token, anything that's bidirectional is central. So if you have nystagmus that moves sometimes to the left and sometimes to the right, that's automatically central. And anything vertical is automatically central. Now, there's one last thing that I'll tell you about is skew. And vertical skew, where there's misalignment of the eyes in the vertical plane, is another important sign of central vertigo. And so that can be very obvious in a case like this. It's more likely to be subtle. And the way that you uncover it, this is not news to you, is by a, a cover-on-cover alternating covering test. And as you alternately cover each eye, this is a little bit tougher to see, but you'll see that there's a vertical misalignment of the eyes. You're done at central, okay? So putting that all together, the patient can't have any signs of central nystagmus, which are bidirectional or vertical. They can't have any misalignment vertically of their eyes with the covering alternate cover test, okay? And the head impulse test, in order for it to be consistent with peripheral vertigo, has to be positive on one of the sides, okay? And if you put those all together, they are a new mnemonic called HINTS. And this has been uh, promulgated mostly by a real great guy at Johns Hopkins named Dave Newman Toker. And he's not an emergency doctor, and he's contributed a tremendous amount to our specialty. This HINTS test okay, get ready for this, is more sensitive than diffusion-weighted MRI for stroke. You heard that right. So there are several patients in these series who identify themselves as central vertigo by the HINTS test, and then the MRI is negative. And then a day later, the MRI turns positive. So this is incredibly important and sensitive stuff. So at this point, I just want to review a few of the key pitfalls when it comes to vertigo. One of the key pitfalls when it comes to the signs and symptoms of peripheral versus central causes of vertigo has to do with hearing loss. Now, normally we think of a change of hearing associated with vertigo as ruling in a peripheral cause. However, an acute change in hearing accompanying vertigo does not rule out stroke, 
because you can pick off the auditory cranial nerve along with the vestibular cranial nerve with a stroke. Another key pitfall, again, when incorporating the Dix-Hallpike into your decision-making is that exacerbation of symptoms or signs with the Dix-Hallpike can occur in both peripheral and central vertigo. Now, one diagnosis that we haven't talked about that can present with acute vertigo is vertebral artery dissection. If a patient presents with acute vertigo and has a history of a recent headache or neck pain or have headache and neck pain in the eMERGE, this should raise your suspicion for vertebral artery dissection. Recent minor head or neck trauma is also an associated risk factor for vertebral artery dissection, but in many cases there isn't an identifiable history of trauma. One last pitfall is assuming that a history of multiple transient prodromal episodes of dizziness over a few weeks or months rules out stroke. In fact, it's quite the opposite. A red flag for stroke includes a history of multiple transient prodromal episodes of dizziness over a few weeks or months. So again, headache, neck pain, or recent trauma associated with vertigo should make you think about vertebral artery dissection. If a patient has a change in hearing, don't assume this is peripheral. This could still be a stroke. And finally, if the patient has a history of multiple transient prodromal episodes of dizziness over weeks or months, this may represent TIAs and increases the chance that the patient presenting to your ED with vertigo has a stroke. Now, all this being said, what if you miss a cerebellar stroke? Well, one small series of misdiagnosed cerebellar stroke reported a 40% mortality as compared with a 5% mortality in the largest unselected series of patients with known cerebellar stroke. So this is a serious disease. Remember that in the posterior fossa, there's not much room for that edema to spread out. And that leads to raised intracranial pressure and bad outcomes. Dr. Swadron's now going to wrap it up for us. So what have we learned today? Make sure that it's isolated. And if you do that, you're a pretty good doctor. You're pretty good, and you won't miss many cases. But there still are some cases of isolated vertigo, and so you still have to consider those things if it's isolated, the ABCs, and find out where it is. And I'm just going to review the algorithm from the beginning. So the patient's got dizziness, and you made sure that it's not disequilibrium. You made sure that it's not lightheadedness. You're sure that this is a sensation of movement. Is it isolated? Okay? I'm repeating myself for a reason. Is it isolated? If they've got any of these five Ds, if they've got any long track signs, if there's any abnormalities on the CT, if you chose to do it, of course you're gonna go do the MRI, call the neurologist and admit the patient. If none of those things are present, you're still a pretty good doc. And just to remind you, the brief episodes, the temporal component is key to picking up BPPV. You don't have to do a Dix-Hallpike. Acute vestibular syndromes, Although the onset is gradual and that usually distinguishes it, that head impulse test is an extra feature that you can use to reassure yourself that it's not central vertigo. And of course, abrupt onset with a negative head impulse test is more suggestive of a cerebellar stroke. So I've simplified things. I hope that's helpful for you. Thanks a lot. And for this month's quote of the month, we have one from Albert Einstein. Everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. Before we go on to the next chapter of this episode, I just want to remind you to please put your comments and share your thoughts 
on the Emergency Medicine Cases website. Remember that one of the most valuable ways we can learn is by having a discussion. So I'd love to hear what you think about Dr. Swadron's vertical lecture. This is Chapter 2 of the highlights of the North York General Emergency Medicine Update Conference from Toronto, May 2014, which brings you a world leader in EM education. My new friend and the nicest, most approachable, and humblest guy I think I've ever met, Dr. Amal Matu. Dr. Matu is a professor, vice chair, and director of the Emergency Cardiology Fellowship in the Department of EM at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. In this presentation, he'll talk about three very important and relatively simple new cardiology topics that will change your EM practice. Left bundle branch block and acute MI, what the ECG criteria are and what they should be for STEMI, and the importance of serial ECG testing. We'll have lots of key images to look at on the EM Cases blog post and on your Agile MD app that I hope you've downloaded from the website already. Now, usually I put in a few intermittent summary statements during the podcast, but Dr. Matu does such a great job summarizing his own material that I'm going to leave it to the master. So here we go with Dr. Amal Matu. Thank you all very much, and uh, once again, thanks to the folks from North York General for inviting me back. So hopefully we'll have a little fun as we go through this talk on emergency cardiology. I'm going to try to focus on just a handful of articles from the recent medical literature. We'll talk a little bit about some new STEMI guidelines and appropriate EKG-related topics. These are not necessarily the most amazing research articles out there, but we're going to talk about some of the key take-home points from these articles, and this is a very biased lecture because I've chosen articles that I think are really useful, and so no surprise, there's a bunch of EKG topics in there. We're going to go through this in a case-based approach, and all of these are actual real cases. Okay, you've got a 58-year-old man who comes into the emergency department complaining of chest pain, nausea, and shortness of breath. He's got a concerning story. Vitals are pretty good. He looks uncomfortable, and you get the 12-lead EKG. And what does it show? A left bundle. Now, you go to the computer, and the most recent EKG that you see is from four months ago, and he had completely normal EKG, no left bundle. So this is a presumed new left bundle, right? And we've all been taught what we need to do with the chest pain plus a presumed new left bundle. We've all been taught that this is a STEMI equivalent. For decades, we've been taught if somebody has chest pain and a new left bundle or presumed new left bundle, treat it like a STEMI. Give them thrombolytics or send them to the cath lab, right? Well, maybe not. Let's take a step back and talk about which patients need emergent reperfusion therapy. In other words, cath lab activation or lytics. And let me ask also, how many people here, if you see a STEMI during your next shift, you give lytics? How many people? So a lot of people here, okay? So again, when I use the term acute reperfusion therapy, we're talking about either cath lab or lytics, either one still within standard of care. So who qualifies for acute reperfusion therapy? Well, again, we mentioned this already. In the 2013 STEMI guidelines, they came up with some new recommendations. And if a STEMI patient goes into cardiac arrest and you get them back, or a cardiac arrest patient, you get them back and they have evidence of STEMI on 12-lead EKG, the guidelines now say that patient needs to go for cath. And some suggestions even get lytics if you don't have cath. So post-arrest STEMI is listed now as one of the criteria 
for cath lab activation or acute reperfusion. All right, that's in the ACCHA guidelines, class one. All right, so that is something that needs to be done. Or what we're most accustomed to, if somebody comes in with concerning symptoms, and for the residents out there, notice that I didn't say chest pain. I just said concerning symptoms. So not everybody needs to have chest pain. If you have an elderly patient, for example, with shortness of breath and diaphoresis, that's just as good as chest pain. You don't have to have chest pain. You have to have concerning symptoms plus a specific EKG. What are the specific EKG findings that we've been taught justify lytics or cath? Well, if they have ST elevation of at least a millimeter in two contiguous leads, that's a no-brainer. We all know that. If you have evidence of a posterior STEMI, all right, so ST depression, V1, V2, V3, maybe you do some posterior leads, you see ST elevation, so posterior STEMI, those patients qualify as well. New left bundle, we're gonna come back to that, and also left bundle branch block with scarbosa criteria or pacemakers with scarbosa criteria. I put those in brackets because those aren't formally in all the guidelines, but there's a lot of good literature definitely for the left bundle and scarbosa, which we'll talk about in a second, and also some increasing literature talking about pacemakers plus scarbosa criteria, all right? So this is what the guidelines have traditionally said. ST elevation two contiguous leads or posterior STEMI or new or presumed new left bundle, and a lot of the guidelines will also say if a patient has a left bundle or pacer with scarbosa criteria, those patients need to go to the cath lab or you give them lytics right now. So what Dr. Matu has just described are the old STEMI guidelines, but you can pretty much forget about those because the newest 2013 guidelines change the playing field. The best reference for what Dr. Matu is about to explain, which will be on the EM case's blog posts and written summary, is a paper from Kai and Meta out of the American Heart Journal called The Left Bundle Branch Block Puzzle in the 2013 ST Elevation Myocardial Infarction Guideline from falsely declaring emergency to denying reperfusion in a high-risk population. Now really, reperfusion therapy is only indicated in the patient with left bundle branch block and concerning symptoms for an MI if 1. they're hemodynamically unstable, 2. they're in acute CHF, 3. they're displaying scarbosa criteria A or B, and 4. They're displaying the newest modification of the Scarbosa criteria involving the ST to S ratio, all of which Dr. Matu are about to explain. Now, I'm going to put this uh, question marks next to the left bundle because in recent years, people have actually been studying this concept of new left bundle. This idea that for the past few decades, we've all been taught if somebody's got a new left bundle, that must be an MI. It must be a transmural MI. Give them lytics or activate your cath lab. One o'clock in the morning, doesn't matter. Call the whole team in, activate your cath lab. But recent studies, relatively large studies, have actually shown that a new left bundle does not confer an increased risk for an MI. What these studies these are some sample studies from recent years. Well, essentially what they said was that if you have a group of patients with chest pain and new left bundle compared to patients with chest pain and known old left bundle compared to patients with chest pain and no bundle, all three groups have the same rate of ruling in. In other words, the new left bundle means nothing in terms of the chance that that person in front of you is going to rule in. 
And so based on studies like this, people have put out some fantastic review articles and put all the literature together. And this is a very, very nice review article from Journal of American College of Cardiology in 2012. And what they said was that this is how we should be practicing. If a person comes in with concerning symptoms and a left bundle, who cares if it's new or old? You can't assume that a new left bundle confers an increased risk, right? The traditional teaching that we've been taught that new left bundle equals MI is based on horrendous data. And so what they say is that if a person's got a left bundle, you don't even need to worry if it's new or old. But a left bundle patient qualifies for lytics if they're hemodynamically unstable or in acute heart failure, or if the patient has concordant ST segment changes, scarbosa, what I call scarbosa A or B. And they said nothing about new or old. You don't have to worry about new or old. Dr. Matu is now going to go through the decision algorithm. When you're presented with a patient with a left bundle branch block and you're thinking about STEMI, which we'll have in the written summary. First question, is the patient hemodynamically unstable or in acute heart failure? If yes, you're done. If they're not unstable or in acute heart failure, go to the next step. Do they have scarbosa concordance criteria? If yes, you're done. Call it a STEM equivalent, give them lytics, or activate the cath lab. If they're not unstable and don't have scarbosa, then you just do a routine rule out the way you do with anyone else with chest pain. It makes it very, very easy, all right? Now, this is what scarbosa concordance criteria are. Essentially, what they say is that if you have a left bundle and you have ST elevation in the same direction as the QRS, or in V1, V2, V3, you have ST depression in the same direction as the QRS, that's what concordance means. And by the way, to meet scarbosa criteria, you don't need two contiguous leads. You only need one lead. Only one lead and you're done, lytics or cath. The key point here is that you don't need to worry about new or old left bundle. You activate your cath lab or give lytics if they're unstable or they've got scarbosic criteria A or B, right? Well, you know what? The national guidelines have caught up with that. And in 2013, the national ACC AHA guidelines came out and they also said, moving forward, New or presumed new left bundle by itself is no longer a criteria for cath or lytics. It is no longer a STEMI criteria. So we can now get rid of it from the board review courses, get rid of it from the board review books, get rid of it from the textbooks. The guidelines now no longer list new or presumed new left bundle as an automatic cath lab activation or dose of lytics. And this is an article that was published after the guidelines came out, essentially validating what Neelan said in that 2012 article. A left bundle should be considered a STEMI equivalent only if the patient's hemodynamically unstable or in acute heart failure or has either of the scarbosa criteria. And they also proposed a third criteria, which we'll talk about in just a second. Essentially, if the ST is deviated more than 25%, in the other direction of the R or S wave. So what Scarbosa said is that if you ever have a QRS that mainly points up and the ST segments elevated a millimeter in the same direction, that's bad, that's a STEMI, activate your cath lab or give lytics. Scarbosa also said in V1, V2, V3, and for whatever reason, she only focused on those three leads, but she said in V1, V2, V3, QRS points down 
So we would expect the ST elevated. But if the QRS points down and the ST is deviated in the same direction of a millimeter, that's bad. That's an MI. Activate your cath lab or give lytics. Those are the two Scarbosa criteria that we're concerned about. Now, there's also been a proposal for a third criteria. This hasn't been validated yet, so I don't think that it's something that you need to use immediately right away. So if you forget this, that's okay. But for those people that are comfortable with Scarbosa, I'm going to take you a step further and talk about this new proposal for a third criteria. Essentially, what they say is that if the QRS goes in a certain direction and the ST segment is in the opposite direction, more than 25% of the size of the R wave, that's positive. Or if you've got a giant S wave and the ST is deviated in the opposite direction more than 25%, that meets criteria also. So just a quick review there. If you have ST deviation in a discordant direction, that's more than 25% the size of the Q wave or the S wave, in a patient who presents with symptoms consistent with an MI with left bundle branch block, then consider activating your cath lab or giving lytics. So take home points. First of all, new left bundle in the absence of instability in the absence of acute heart failure, and in the absence of Scarbosa criteria, new left bundle, don't worry about it. Just treat them like a normal chest pain patient, right? You don't need to go searching for the most recent EKG. Right? And also, we'll have to see what the literature says about this proposed third rule. But make sure you know the Scarbosa rules A and B that we've talked about. Because if you don't know them, you're going to miss some of those patients that are having a STEM equivalent. You've got a patient with suspected MI and there's a left bundle. Who cares if it's new or old? First question, are they unstable or in acute heart failure? If yes, you're done. Activate your cath lab or give lytics. If they're not unstable or in acute heart failure, go to the next question. Is there a Scarbosa concordance? In other words, Scarbosa A or B. If yes, you're done. Give lytics or activate your cath lab. If there's not Scarbosa concordance, then you can consider that third rule but if that's negative also, you're just going to treat them like any other chest pain. Get your serial EKGs, serial troponins, rule them out just the way you do anyone else. And I think this has made life a lot easier when we see patients with left bundle come in with concerning symptoms. Do not have to try to figure out, is this new or old? You just look for instability, heart failure, or Scarbosa A or B. Very simple. The vast majority of patients with left bundle branch block who present to the ED with chest pain do not have an MI. The patients we need to identify are the less than 10% of left bundle patients who do have an acute occlusion of a coronary artery since these are the ones who clearly benefit from acute reperfusion therapy. The ECG may help to identify some of these patients with acute coronary occlusion, Concordant ST elevation or ST elevation in leads that shouldn't have ST elevation are the best predictors of acute occlusion. Now, the modified Scarbosa criteria, which includes this third criteria of more than 25% of the R or S wave discordant deviation, is more sensitive than the original Scarbosa criteria for predicting acute MI in the presence of a left bundle. But don't forget that this needs an external validation study before we begin to apply it widely in clinical practice.
Before we go on to the next section, Dr. Matu will present you a little comedic interlude. Anybody here have dictation, dictation systems out there? So I love dictation, but somebody tried to talk me out of it by sending me a whole bunch of transcripts of actual dictated medical records. Very interesting. These are actual dictations, transcriptions on final medical records. Here's a quote. The patient has no previous history of suicides, right? It's a good thing. The patient left her white blood cells at another hospital. The patient has two teenage children, but no other abnormalities. <laughs> All right. She has no rigors or shaking chills, but her husband says she was very hot in bed last night. <laughs> The magic's not gone. <laughs> All right. So some more bizarre medical records. Large brown stool ambulating in a hall. That's kind of scary, actually. All right. Patient had waffles for breakfast and anorexia for lunch. The patient was in his usual state of good health until his airplane ran out of fuel and crashed. Can't argue with that. And a rectal exam revealed a normal-sized thyroid. <laughs> and with that image etched into your brain, on to case number two. A 50-year-old man with chest pain who came in with a pretty good story. I'm not going to give you all the details. Just trust me, it was a good story for ACS. So you get a quick 12-lead EKG. They did not think that there was enough ST segment elevations. He just uh, repeated the 12 lead about 15, 20 minutes later. There is ST segment elevation of at least a millimeter in at least leads three and lead AVF. So by repeating the 12 lead, life became a lot easier. And at this point, he consulted cardiology. They got the first troponin back. It was elevated. Patient got streptokinase. There was a little bit of a delay in giving the thalytics. Patient did well. So I'm not presenting this case because anything bad happened, but because it gives us an opportunity to talk about ST segment elevation. Because 2013, I learned some new stuff about ST elevation that I didn't know before, or at least wasn't sure about before, based on what the guidelines. So the first question Dr. Matu is going to answer is, where do you measure the ST elevation from? Now, we used to just say the J point, but it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. Where do you measure the ST elevation? I still hear people all over the map. You measure it at the J point. You measure it 40 milliseconds after the J point. I hear some people say 60 milliseconds after the J point. And if you're using the TP as your baseline, that's a millimeter. But if you're measuring at the J point, there's no ST segment elevation. All right. So let's go to some well-documented literature and some papers out there. This is from Journal of American College of Cardiology in Circulation 2009. So every five years or so, the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association and a bunch of other societies all get together and they come up with new guidelines about how we're supposed to interpret the EKG, right? New guidelines for how we should interpret STEMI, non-STEMI, left bundle, right bundle, everything, right? In 2009 was the last time they did this. Take a look at the lead author, Galen Wagner, who's the senior editor now on the Marriott textbook, very well-known electrocardiography expert, 2009, they said, we're supposed to measure at the J point and look for two contiguous leads, all right? There's also something very interesting that came out in this particular paper. They didn't say one millimeter of ST elevation in all of the leads. In fact, in this paper, by two major organizations, perhaps two of the largest cardiology organizations in the world, 
published in the two biggest cardiology journals in the world, what they said is that STEMI is defined not by one millimeter in two contiguous leads. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Here's what they said. Well, in men over the age of 40, it's two millimeters in V2, V3, and one millimeter in all the other leads. In men under the age of 40, it's 2.5 millimeters in V2 and V3. And in women, it's 1.5 millimeters in V2 and V3. So in other words, V2 and V3 have different criteria. Not only that, but it's different criteria in men and women. Not only that, but it's different criteria in men that are under 40 versus men that are over 40. Well, I'm not going to pay attention to this publication. Let's look at a better publication. Let's go to the 2013 National Guidelines on STEMI. All right? So here's what the ACCAHA 2013 STEMI guidelines say that we should define STEMI as on EKG. Same thing. Hmm, that's not what I learned. That's what, not what I've been practicing for many, many years, right? Well, you know, this is just American stuff, right? ACCAHA, you know, there's American cardiologists, nah, you know, let's go to something maybe a little bit more universal. So this is the 2012 expert consensus document, European Society of Cardiology, American Cardiology Foundation, American Heart Association, the World Health Federation. There's stormtroopers that are involved in this thing, uh, right? The third intergalactic definition of myocardial infarction. This is what the criteria are on Jupiter and the Crab Nebula everywhere, right? Same thing. So I think it's important to realize that the criteria actually are different than maybe what many of us have learned. Now, I'm not telling you to start ignoring one or one and a half or two millimeters of ST segment elevation. I'm not telling you to do that. But I've been able actually to use these guidelines to help some physicians that have been sued for missing subtle STEMIs. And also it's important to realize that as a normal variant, Everybody has greater elevation in V2 and V3, especially young men. And so, you know, ST elevation is more complicated than we've ever thought. It's not just a matter of looking at the J point and looking for ST elevation. It's a bit more complicated than that. And perhaps what we should be doing is spending our time paying a lot of attention, looking at reciprocal changes, and also the morphologies of the ST segments. In particular, one morphology that I want to nail into your brain is if you ever see an ST segment which is straight. Straight is not good. Normal ST segments should be concave upwards. That's, happy. That's like a happy face, right? Happy face. When it's concave upwards, we're happy. When it starts getting tombstone, everybody knows that's bad. But what happens between concave upwards and tombstone is straightening. And if you ever see ST segments that are straight, do yourself and your patient a big favor, just repeat the 12 lead, which is exactly what this physician did and made the diagnosis of STEMI. So in other words, you could have less than one millimeter of J-point elevation in two contiguous leads, which would not fulfill the criteria for a STEMI according to the guidelines. But if you see that straightening of the ST segment, you know that that's probably a STEMI. And what you do then is repeat the ECGs frequently 
to look carefully for any ST segment evolution. And as Dr. Matu will explain next, you need to look for those reciprocal changes. Talk to cardiologists who invasive cardiologists will say, if you go to the cath lab and you actually, I guess just for kicks, you tie off a coronary artery, right? What's the first thing that happens on the 12 lead? It's not ST elevation. Sometimes it's a reciprocal change that develops first. Sometimes the reciprocal changes precede the ST elevation. And even more importantly, before the ST start to rise, the first thing that happens to the ST segment is it goes from concave upwards to straight. And then it starts to rise and become tombstone. So again, please, if you ever see ST segments that are straight, repeat the 12 lead in a little bit and look for development of ST elevation. Here's the second EKG. There's already clearly ST elevation, so you're done. But again, take a look at how straight that is. It's an early finding. Sometimes people talk about hyperacute T waves. Everybody makes a big fuss about hyperacute T waves as being these tall T waves. Hyperacute doesn't mean tall. Hyperacute, in my mind, means the initial part of the T wave is straight. When you see the initial part of the T wave is straight, just repeat the 12 lead. And we say this all the time, you know. What's the big deal about repeating the 12 lead? It's a piece of paper and ink, for gosh sakes. It costs practically nothing. And if that repeat 12 lead tells you that somebody is a STEMI in process, you just saved someone's life, as this physician did. Right? So, simple take-home point once again. ST elevation is a bit more complicated. Pay attention to the morphologies of the ST segments. And whenever you have in doubt, any doubts, just get cardiology involved. You don't have to be a hero about this. You don't have to be a cowboy about this. Get cardiology's eyes involved in this as well. And get serial EKGs, and you'll be amazed how often those serial EKGs lead to a life-saving diagnosis. So, summary thus far. New left bundle equals STEM equivalent, gone. Left bundle's a STEM equivalent. Who cares if it's new or old? Left bundle's a STEM equivalent if they're hemodynamically unstable, if they have acute heart failure, or if they have those Scarbosa A or B. In terms of ST elevation, we measure at the J point, not 40 milliseconds after, which is what I learned in residency, some of you did as well, not 60 milliseconds after, which is what I still hear some people do, but right at the J point, and morphology is probably more important than the actual ST elevation. Last case. Simple case, simple take-home point from this case as well. We've got a 61-year-old woman who came to the emergency department. Again, all of these are real cases. This, this woman came in, and she's got substernal chest pain, shortness of breath, maybe diaphoresis. She's clearly coming in. There's no doubt. This isn't even atypical. This is a clear-cut, typical ACS case. The first EKG, however, is pretty much unremarkable. All right? Well, doesn't matter. We're bringing her in. We're going to give her the aspirin. You know, if, if you're a heparin fan, you can start the heparin. We're going to do everything. And she's coming in to at least telemetry. So pretty normal 12-lead EKG. But there's no beds upstairs. Right? You guys have that problem every now and then? There's no beds upstairs. Right? She's stuck with, with us in the ED. We give her some nitrates. She's getting a little bit better, but we can't get rid of the pain. She's got persistent pain. What do you do? Start a nitro drip? Give her morphine? Sure, we're going to do all of those things. But simple thing here. When somebody has persistent pain that you're worried about, repeat the 12 lead. All right, that's it. Just repeat the 12 lead. Get another one. All right, so we're going to repeat the 12 lead. Here's EKG number two. 
T-waves are getting bigger and it's becoming straight. You're also starting to develop a little bit of ST depression. Remember what we said just a few minutes ago. When somebody's having an MI, the first thing that develops is not the ST elevation. The first things that may develop are the reciprocal change and the straightening. And when you see that, get another EKG. So we got another one. 20, 30 minutes later, now the patient is starting to develop Wellens. And then a short time later, well, a short time later, the ST start to rise a little bit. This patient goes right up to the cath lab and turned out to have a 100% LAD lesion. If the patient had simply gone upstairs with that first EKG, what would have happened? She would have sat there infarcting for who knows how long. Because how long does it take to get a repeat 12 lead up on the floors? It'd take a long time, right? And during all that time, the patient's just continuing to infarct. But because she's in the ED right in front of us, we just repeat the 12 piece of paper and ink. It costs practically nothing, and it probably saved her life. Right? And that leads me to this study. It's a very, very nice, simple study with a simple take-home point. Published in American Heart Journal in 2013. They looked at over 41,000 patients from a STEMI database, and what they found was that 11% of the patients who were diagnosed with the STEMI were not diagnosed with the STEMI on the first EKG. It was the subsequent EKGs that made the diagnosis of a STEMI. And almost always, the diagnostic STEMI EKG was obtained within the first hour and a half. In other words, if your patient has a STEMI, chances are they're going to manifest the ST elevation in the first hour to hour and a half while they're with you in the emergency department. Simple take-home point. If somebody's got concerning symptoms, just repeat the 12 lead and you might discover a STEMI evolving right in front of you. Have a low threshold to get repeat 12 EKGs, especially when people have ongoing concerning pain or if there's changes. The pain's getting worse, the pain goes away, it comes back again, just get a repeat 12 lead. I promise you, before next year's conference, every one of you who does this will be able to come back and say, I picked up a STEMI or I picked up an ACS case that I would have missed had I not done the 12 leads. All right, this is not a zebra thing. Everybody in this room will pick this up just by being liberal about the repeat 12 leads. And those are lives saved by a piece of paper and ink called an EKG. For those people that might be interested in more practice, every Monday, on our university website, I post a little video case. It's open access, and these go all the way back to September 2011, if you want some extra practice. www.ekg.umem.org. And if you want to review the stuff that Dr. Matus just talked about with left bundle branch block and ST elevation, it's all on this fantastic free resource. We'd love to hear your comments, questions, or concerns about Dr. Matu's lecture and Dr. Swadron's lecture on vertigo. You can either email me directly at anton at emergencymedicinecases.com, or you can go to the website and at the bottom of the blog post, submit your comments to start a discussion online. We're going to be bringing you more from the Emergency Medicine Update Conference in Toronto and if you really enjoyed Dr. Matu's lecture, he's going to be in the Emergency Medicine Update Europe conference, which is in October, and this year it's going to be in France. If you like cycling, fine French fruit, and wine, this is the conference for you. You can go to the EMU website for further details. 
As well, we're going to have a fantastic episode on social media, foam, and medical education with Dr. Rob Rogers, who's also from Baltimore, who runs a great course called I Teach EM there. And he's done podcasts on the EM Rap Educators Edition, as well as a new podcast that's really amazing. We'll also have Dr. Ken Milne from Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, as well as Dr. Brent Toma from Boring EM and Academic Life in Emergency Medicine. So until next time, take it easy.